A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Uh, we're going to be talking today about women feeling unsafe. This is not a new phenomenon. It's been the case for a very long time. But after the murder of 33-year-old marketing executive Sarah Everard in London, the collective trauma and stories about the ways women modify their behaviour in order to try and feel safe has spilled out on social media and elsewhere all over the world. It's a massive conversation point still. So we're going to be talking today about that and about solutions to what is a problem that's still not taken seriously enough. But before I introduce you to our guests, I want to remind you that the Big Night In is back on Saturday night at 7pm and you can still get tickets from irishtimes.com forward slash Big Night In. We hope to see loads of you there on Saturday night when I'll be talking to the wonderful Cork disability activist and Irish Times sports columnist Joanne O'Reardon. Now, today, some of you I know will be taking part in the Reclaim the Streets protests in cities such as Cork and Galway. We had a protest in Dublin last Tuesday, a socially distanced and fully masked gathering of around 150 people who wanted to raise awareness of the issue of women's safety and to show solidarity after the murder of Sarah Everard in London. And today, the Irish Times carries a report called Travelling in a Woman's Shoes, which showed that large numbers of women fear for their safety using public transport, and more than half of women won't use it after dark. That's a report from Transport Infrastructure Ireland. So in this episode, I talked to three women who are working in this area. Laura Bates, who many of you will know for her work with the amazing Everyday Sexism Project, which has collated hundreds of thousands of testimonies from women across 25 countries. She's the author of The Everyday Sexism Book and Girl Up, and her new book is called Men Who Hate Women. Ruth Coppinger is a former TD with Irish Solidarity, People Before Profit, and a founding member of ROSA, a movement for reproductive justice in Ireland. She's one of the organisers of the Reclaim the Streets protests as well. And Anna Golden is a 22-year-old maths and economics student in NUIG, is a member of Plan International's Irish and Global Youth Advisory Panels, and she advocates for children and girls' rights both at home and all over the world. We talked about the collective trauma that has unfolded with women and girls telling their stories of everyday violence, fear, harassment and rules they follow in order to stay safe. And we talked about possible solutions to the fact that so many women and girls live in fear of attack or intimidation. But I began by asking Laura Bates to talk to us about the reaction in Britain and all over the world to the murder of Sarah Everard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has certainly seen a a collective outpouring of of grief, of rage, of of women's own stories very courageously shared, of, of abuse. 
I think there's been a lot more to it than that, though, as well. There has been there has been real fury and grief, not only about Sarah's tragic death, not only about the fact that so many women could imagine themselves in that position, walking home, the safety um, mechanisms that we all subscribe to in our daily lives as a way of trying to avoid male violence, but also the response, I think, is partly what's prompted such outrage, because immediately we had people saying, these are isolated incidents. This is very rare. Immediately we had police telling women near the scene to stay inside, to keep themselves safe, not to go out at night. Immediately we had not all men trending on Twitter. And I think that there was a fury about that. There was a fury about the fact that um, there was a failure to recognise the systemic nature of the problem. There was the victim blaming that we've seen so many times. And this is absolutely something that resonates, I think, with women globally. Women around the world, in every country where we collect testimonies, they report being blamed and shamed for their own assault, for their own abuse. They report being told it was their own fault, being asked what they were wearing or what they were doing there. So I think it's partly that element of this that sparked such fury and that's resonated so much. But I think also, for, particularly for those of us who work in this field, there's an exhaustion and, and an anger about the fact that this is being held up as if it's a, a sudden thing that's come out of the blue. You know, you've got people saying, my God, this thing's happened. And you've got men saying, we're shocked. And you've got the prime minister saying, hmm, let's do some CCTV cameras, as if this has come out of nowhere. And, and you know, this would have been equally relevant any, any day of the week. You know, a woman is killed in England and Wales every three days on average by a current or former partner and we're talking about a police force where women don't feel safe reporting they tell us that they've had terrible experiences coming forward to the police particularly black and minority ethnic women um, trans women sex workers you know it's been less than a year since this same police force had um, officers who were suspended for taking photos of themselves next to the dead bodies of two murdered black women so I think there is a sense amongst women of saying, why aren't you listening to us? Why do we have to keep doing this again and again and again? So it's it's grief, but it's also fury and, and tiredness, I think. Yeah, well, Laura, thank you very much for that. And like you say, it has resonated with so many of us. And, and on that, I'd like to bring you in, Ruth, because you've been involved with Rosa organising the protests in Dublin, which are continuing today all around the country. Uh, so it looked as if it passed off very peacefully. And it looked to me like very socially distanced and responsible because I suppose even in a pandemic, we have a right to protest and make our feelings heard on things. How did it go on Tuesday? Yeah, it went exceptionally well. It was socially distant. Everyone was wearing a mask. It was small in number and limited in duration. And similarly in Belfast, it was exceptionally, you know, places were marked out for people to stand. And there are other protests in Galway, Cork and Limerick today and Swords as well. And the reason for it is this, that actually violence against women, not alone has it not gone away in the pandemic, but it's actually increased because calls for so-called domestic violence, which I prefer to call gender violence, have rocketed to women's aid, got 43% rise in calls and the Gardaí got at least 25% because there's no means of escape now which would have been difficult for somebody in an abusive relationship before, but with lockdown is even harder. And I think that these sort of socially distant protests are vital because, let's face it, if we wait for Parliament to come forward with, you know, changes that are needed, we'll be waiting 
it has only been protest and movements that have brought about change. And I think what we're seeing, and it reflects what the previous speaker just said, in Australia, the hashtag is enough is enough for the protests that are taking place in cities all around uh, Australia. We've seen the neo-Numenos movement throughout Latin America in the last few years against femicide because women's lives have become, you know, of utter very little value. Uh, every three hours in South Africa, a woman is murdered. Every, you know, te- three a day in, in Mexico or something like that. And what we're seeing in, in Ireland, uh, I think, is also that women did feel it was important to come out despite the restrictions and the Gardaí came down, by the way, yesterday. And a lot of people said, fair enough, you have to do your job. But, you know, when barring orders are being breached, where are you? When women actually call for help, where are you? So the state made a point, as in London, of coming out. But I think the USI survey that was done here, and I'm sure Anna will, you know, testify to this, gives us a glimpse of what's happening, particularly with younger women, because I think this is generational. Like my generation would have had to just put up with sexism and misogyny, whereas this generation, very thankfully, very positively, are refusing to, are saying that no more sexism, no more misogyny. And it does have to be said, the reaction online, I've never seen anything like the intervention, probably generated by the far right, probably generated by... uh, also a regression in, in attitudes in certain ways, but the not all men. Now we're hearing men's mental health being counterposed to women's safety on the streets. But we have to point out men can also be sexually abused. LGBT and trans people can be uh, sexually assaulted and are. And it isn't one versus the other. But these arguments are being consciously uh, injected, including it has to be said by some sort of more privileged women like Davina McCall and, and others, you know, posting very unhelpful things about, I don't walk home at night alone. Well, you can afford not to. Whereas if you're a working class woman, you know, coming home from work, you either are reliant upon public transport or walking home. And as we've seen, neither of those women feel particularly safe in. So it's just funny that the Gardaí told people yesterday to leave, but women are under effective curfew with or without a pandemic, it would seem, because of a self-imposed curfew. We had a story in the Irish Times today by Olivia Kelly about uh, travelling in a woman's shoes report, and it just showed that large numbers of women in Ireland fear for their safety using public transport, cycling or walking alone. This is a report from Transport Infrastructures Ireland. More than half won't use public transport after dark. And it also showed that women, something you mentioned, Laura, as well, feel responsible for their safety and that there's little focus on sort of men's actions or men doing anything about that. And I just want to come to you now as... um. Ruth mentioned you're 22, you're a student in Galway. First of all, your own personal experience of being a young woman in Ireland in in relation to what we're speaking about. Yeah, I think that really what's come across on social media and in the news over the last week or so, that's kind of been there always, but it's really being highlighted in the last week, is just how much, you know, young women in Ireland um, and across the world modify their behaviour and have this fear of things happening and that it's not an unfounded fear. You know, maybe events like what happened to Sarah Everard are more rare, but when the USI survey that Ruth mentioned shows that 30% of women in universities in Ireland have been raped, 
that's not rare. That's, you know, a third of the people, of the women I'm in college with. It's my friends, it's people, you know, that I'm working with and talking with. And I think that what's really being shared is those stories and is the fear and the modifications that people feel. All the steps that we take, texting our friends, calling our friends when we're in taxis, when we're walking home, walking home with people in groups. I don't know, you might hear of a group of guys walking 30 minutes home on their own. And like, that's just not something we could even imagine doing. So there's one time, for example, when I was walking home from handball training when I was living in France and a car pulled up beside me and a man leaned out and asked if I wanted to get in and come with him. And I was terrified even to say no because I knew that my accent would show. And it's that fear that we could be the next story or the next statistic that really we've all had those moments, you know, when a taxi driver takes a different turn, when someone's following us on the street, you know, even messages on social media. Um, I think that's what's really coming across. And it's really important that people, you know, listen to the stories that are being shared this week um, and always, but especially, you know, take the time to see what's going on. Talk to me about your activism, Anna, because you're involved in Plan Ireland and Plan International in terms of children's and girls' rights. And you were involved in a survey in 2018. What did that show? Yeah, so in 2018, we conducted a survey of young people in Ireland that found that 90% of the women surveyed felt more vulnerable because of their gender. And it also found that one third had been physically harassed in public spaces and six in 10 felt unsafe taking the taking public transport. So it just feels like, I mean, as I'm listening to you, Anna, I'm thinking about when I was, um, you know, 12, 13, just walking to the shops and I was in a very nice part of Dublin called Sandy Mount. And, you know, sometimes just going out my door to go to the local shop because there would be a gang of boys or young men around and it wouldn't matter what I was doing. There was somebody going to say, comment on something. And I think what people are finding as well, it's just all very depressing because it feels like we have been experiencing this and talking about this for so long, Laura. I mean, your Everyday Sexism Project, you've got 100,000 testimonies, I think, from from people all over the world. Is there that sense of frustration as well? Or, I mean, how do you stay hopeful? And what, what do we need to do? How do we move things on and make our children and their and our granddaughters not have to talk about this ad, ad nauseum, you know? Absolutely. That is exactly the sentiment. We continue to to do this. We continue to do the very hard and often traumatic work of sharing our stories, of consciousness raising, as it was called, of course, in the 70s. Feminists have been doing this for decades, of raising awareness, as we tend to call it now. You know, they used feminist consciousness raising circles. We use websites and social media. The answer, I think, is that It will never end until somebody listens to those stories and takes action. We're stuck in a cycle at the moment where people want to see the sharing of stories in and of itself as the solution. So you can see, for example, you can see it in headlines that say things like, did Me Too really change anything? As if it's the women coming forward to share their stories of being raped, abused, assaulted, discriminated against, who somehow magically should fix the problem as well. We have to recognise that that is a vital and courageous first step, but that then where we need to go for 
from there is to people in positions of power, listening to those stories, taking the problem on board and saying, here are the systemic ways in which we will put concrete action in place to prevent another generation of women having to come forward one day with their stories. And that's the missing piece at the moment. We've got the awareness raising, we've got the conversation happening, but too many people want to point to the conversation and say, hey, we've done that, tick that box, let's move on. So what that means is that we need to look at our institutions. We need to look at a police a police force that is institutionally racist and misogynistic. You know, it's not only the fact that a police officer has been charged in the Sarah Everard case with her murder and kidnapping. It isn't even the only police officer this week who's been charged with, with similar crimes in England. We've seen another officer charged with rape and sexual assault. We've seen story after story coming out of police officers um, abusing women who've tried to report domestic abuse, police officers themselves involved in sexual violence cases, systemic racism experienced by black women when they try to report to the police. If we don't tackle that institutionalised issue, then we'll never reach a point where women feel that they can come forward and expect the police to support them, and rightly so. And Laura, on that institutional, and maybe Ruth, you might come in to this as well as a former TD, I mean, it just seems to me, and it might be very obvious what I'm about to say, you know, why people aren't listening or why nothing's happening. Is that because we're still in a situation where it's predominantly men who are in the decision-making roles? I mean, in Ireland particularly, I don't know what the statistics are in Britain, Laura, but we're 101st in line in terms of political representation of women in Parliament. Like we're behind Afghanistan and China. And I mean, Ruth, would you say that has something important to do with it and that we need to work on that as well or something needs to be done there massively? Well, there is no question that representation matters and we should have parliaments that are representative of the whole of society, be it, you know, women, people of colour, working class people, etc. What what I would say is this, that Ireland in particular has a deep seated history of misogyny in our state. You know, look at the mother and baby homes issue that reared its head. I think thousands of people would have been out on the streets on that issue, actually, only for the pandemic. But I think there's two issues. It's systemic, but obviously there are things that parliaments could do. So just on the system thing for one minute, we live in a society where violence against women is either excused, minimised and just basically allowed. You have a macho culture, you have victim blaming, but you also have under capitalism, a system where violence is used by the powerful against people with less power all of the time. And that translates, be it for resources and profits, but it also interpersonal relations. But I think three things could be done immediately. Number one, we need education throughout the length and breadth of society about consent. We, We need this in schools, in colleges, in workplaces, in communities. We also need resources. How seriously is this a priority when you have rape crisis centres with waiting lists? You have 500 women turned away from the Blanchardstown local refuge here in my area last year and you have uh, no resources. You have more for the greyhound and racing industry than you have for gender violence. And then lastly, of course, we do need legal changes. It should be possible for somebody who sexually assaulted to take a case and the attrition rate is so unbelievably high. And if people recall, I highlighted this in Parliament, you know, this is not consent with the tongue in the doll. That's over two and a half years ago. Nothing's actually happened since then. 
And yes, I know there was a review which is proposing quite minor things, but you still have things like the sex education bill that we moved, which is languishing, bureaucratically being held up. And also you've got church-based ethos schools using that to prevent these discussions taking place. So I, I do think if you had a government that considered this a priority, it would happen quicker. But that is why things like protests and movements are necessary, because we all know that's how everything changes. Laura, just back to you for a second. I saw Stella Creasy, who's been campaigning on this for a while, uh, tweeting, and the mayor of London as well, that misogyny is going to be classed as a hate crime now. Do you um, think, and maybe Anna, you might have comments on this afterwards as well, do you think that's going to help at all? How important is that? I think it's a really positive step, symbolically, as much as anything else. When they um, piloted this project in Nottingham, under Nottinghamshire Police, what they found was that many of the women who came forward to report during the pilot period were actually reporting very serious crimes and, and forms of abuse, but they wouldn't necessarily have come forward with them if it hadn't been for the initiative. So it's not about changing the law. There are huge misconceptions about this misogyny hate crime thing. People go on about how it's criminalising men for wolf whistling. That's nonsense. It doesn't change the law. But it gives police the opportunity to recognise patterns of misogynistic offending, which can be crucial. And also it gives uh, people the confidence to come forward to police and to believe that they'll be taken seriously. But it's really hard to believe that any of this will be taken seriously when the people who are making some of these claims, some of the people in positions of responsibility in our parliament are themselves men who have a a pattern of these types of comments and behaviour. You know, here in the UK, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson yesterday said in parliament that we need to address the fundamental issue of everyday sexism, which would be fantastic to hear from somebody in Parliament if it weren't from somebody who has a history of calling women totty, of saying that you should deal with a female colleague by patting her on her bottom and sending her on her way, who's written in a national newspaper about Muslim women looking like letterboxes and bank robbers, who's talked about the joy of watching uh, semi-naked women writhing like glistening otters when he was watching the Olympics. So I think, you know, the credibility is stretched pretty thin when you've got an overwhelmingly white male group of people making decisions for the rest of us. We've seen in the pandemic and the fallout from that, both in terms of the spike in domestic abuse and in terms of the enormous negative impact on women's careers, because not enough was done to anticipate these crises that would happen when women suddenly were dealing with homeschooling as well as their jobs. We've seen again and again that when you have a group of men in a position of power who don't represent the community that they're serving and don't necessarily have any understanding or experience of these issues. During the decision-making process for all that, in our cabinet, the 27 people attending that cabinet and those vital meetings through that time, of those 27 people, just five of them were women and just one of them is a black person. So, you know, it it really is difficult to believe and trust that these are decision-making bodies who are going to take the real action. It's great for Boris Johnson to stand up and say everyday sexism is a problem, but if he wants us to take him seriously given his track record we need to see him moving to ratify the Istanbul convention for example we need to see him putting into place ring-fenced funding for frontline sexual violence services and particularly those by and for services for black and minoritized women at that point I'd say great we're really seeing somebody who gets it right now it's difficult to trust that that's the case yeah going back to you Anna in terms of your peers um both your peers that are men and women what is the conversation among you and 
like Ruth mentioned it earlier about the generational thing, and I sort of alluded it to to it too. When 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 Ruth and I and, and other people of our age kind of were experiencing these things, a lot of the time you just knew there was nothing to be done. If you said something, you were just you were called worse names, and you were and even other women would sort of tell you. I, I've experienced it myself. You know, don't make a fuss. Like just put up with it. it was kind of the way we were raised. But you guys, um, you're in your early twenties. Are are not being raised that way. And what difference is that making, do you think? I think that definitely people feel that um, they're more likely to believe, you know, among their peers and in social groups like that. But I think there's still the massive issue uh, of coming forward and whether that will be believed or, you know, whether even if it is believed, whether anything can be done or, you know, whether you'll get a result if you do go to court and how awful going through court is in any situation like that. And then even in the few cases that arrive at a guilty verdict, how low the sentences seem in proportion to the crimes. Yeah, I think in terms of the conversations we're having among ourselves, people are much more likely to be believed. And, you know, young people, uh, my peers, you know, I think uh, making very conscious efforts and have moved away from victim blaming. That was a lot of the conversation over the last week was that it's not your fault that nothing you've done, you know, makes it your fault and highlighting that. And what about um, young men, Anna, do you think? Do you see the conversation changing there? Because I found really interesting on social media, you know, still men kind of going, oh, yeah, I go for my run at 11 o'clock at night because it's good because the streets are deserted. But I never thought about the fact that a woman wouldn't want to do that. Those pennies still seem to be dropping. But do you find your uh, young men of your acquaintance kind of are, are more aware of it? Um, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed in terms of men kind of in the last week in terms of all this is, you know, is the silence. I mean, I've seen so many women share things on social media in relation to all that's been going on. And the guys you have, you re- it really stands out and you notice it. And I think that in order for things to change, men need to have this conversation. They need to listen and share the stories of women. And then they need to have it themselves, you know, among themselves, um, you know, with their own friends. Laura, what about you? Do you think men's involvement is different this time around, say, in relation to Sarah Everard? And how important do you think it is? I think we're certainly seeing some men uh, really stepping up, coming forward, saying that this has opened their eyes, that they want to be part of the solution. Um, certainly amongst teenagers, I'd say I'm often meeting boys at school who are really keen to be to be part of it. And that's really encouraging to see. I was at a school visit recently, in fact, where a group of three boys nervously um, came up after my talk and waited till everyone else had gone. And then they came forward and said, um, we, we want to start a feminist society. And we were just wondering are we allowed? <laughs> and it was great. It was, you know, it's so exciting to see that, that that is there and that there are, you know, brilliant young men wanting to be involved. But we are also still seeing too much of a of a real backlash, of a knee-jerk defensive response. Um, you know, not all men trended. There were 66,000 tweets in a single day with the hashtag not all men recently. And for that kind of response to be trending in the wake of a, a tragedy like this is particularly disheartening, I think. It really suggests that there is still such resistance, not even just resistance to men becoming involved, but even to acknowledging that the problem exists in the first place. So I think you know, it's it's positive that some men are stepping up. It's positive that we have more male role models that are speaking out about this, that are trying to disrupt normalised sexism. You know, you've got men like Ben Hurst talking to boys about it, men like Andy Murray speaking about it with his platform. But there really does feel like there's still a very long way to go there. And I think a big part of that is the very deliberate radicalisation of men and boys 
that is happening by extremist misogynist communities online. And until we start to recognise that that is a real major issue, it, it will be very difficult to tackle it, I think. Ruth, can I come back to you in relation to um, our hate speech laws, which are hopefully going to come into force? And at the moment, they're about ethnic uh, minorities and religious minorities. But should misogyny be included in that now? Is that something that you think might happen? And would it make a difference? I suppose any time laws are changed, it also does have a societal impact in that there's a big discussion that takes place throughout society as well. So I'm certainly all for any kind of additional tools that we have to spread the idea of equality and equal treatment. I think, I mean, I, I would go back to, yes, there are things parliaments can do and there's no sign of them doing them. I haven't heard a peep out of the Irish government this week, despite, I know it was St. Patrick's Day, but this is a, a global movement that's happening now before our eyes. And I do think we have to look at when change did come about in Ireland in, in relation to women and church and state. And it was when movements took place, like the repeal movement, which I think actually had an impact beyond just abortion rights. I think it had an impact in terms of how, we, you know, women's rights in general in society. I, I think that younger people, educated older people, thousands upon thousands of doorsteps were walked and conversations were had and I think it moved everything forward. I even noticed that when the mother and baby homes issue happened, you know, in the autumn and again recently, there was a much bigger sign that people wanted separation of church and state that I hadn't seen before. I would agree with Laura about I have noticed more men being educated, but I have also noticed a backlash that's been generated by far right and incel type you know, movements. I think there was some report that young men are going onto these sites online. Uh, there was some statistics about that. And I think it is being reflected. Like I haven't yet, I haven't ever in all my years of highlighting violence against women seen it being counterposed in the same way to men's mental health or to, there was some woman came to the protest the other day and started shouting about her son's mental health. You know, I mean, I, I haven't he heard that sort of, paradoxical, you know, strange paradox being brought up. And I think that these arguments are being injected. I also think that the male violence, which obviously there is, but it has also been equalised with violence against women and there's systemic violence against women and it isn't the same thing. So I think that th those are other features that have come up. Anna, with your advocacy and your activism, have you, after the survey, did you come up with practical things that you think should happen? Because Ruth has outlined a few of them there. Because a lot of the time we're, we're naming the problem and as, as Laura talked about as well, all these stories coming out and that's almost seen like ticking the box. Look, we've identified it and then it moves on and nothing happens. So have you any practical um, things that you're looking at? Yeah, I think building on what Laura was saying and, and Ruth as well is that all these stories are coming out and this is all being shared this week. And it's really important that, you know, everyone takes the time to listen and to have that empathy and put themselves in the shoes of the people sharing the stories and to think about the decisions that they make and their lives. I think one of the biggest suggestions for us coming out of our advocacy and our survey is that 
people in decision making need to listen to the views of young women and girls when they're designing public spaces and public transport systems. Laura, just if you can speak to that a bit, um, because like I said, we find ourselves talking a lot about uh, what the problem is and we kind of know and, and a lot of us are exhausted and sick and tired and frustrated talking about it. So do you have a way to move this forward in a way and to kind of suggest practical things that need to happen right now if people are listening, yeah. as as Anna just said? Absolutely. So I think in terms of individual action, there is a role that all of us can play in challenging the normalisation of the, of the everyday behaviours and attitudes towards women that underlie these kinds of issues. You know, it's the normalisation of this stuff. It's the idea that it's just the way things are, that nothing will ever change. That is at the root of the fact that, you know, we say it's women who should change their dress and behaviour, for example, because sexual violence will always be there and they have to protect themselves. Challenging the way in which we as a society are approach these issues will have a really major impact and everyone can play a part in that. But I do also think there are really clear practical things that we could be doing right now at a more institutional level that we're not doing. And a really good example of this, I think, is that in in London, the British Transport Police um, carried out an initiative called Project Guardian a few years ago. And what happened was that they had become aware that sexual offences were a problem on the transport network. And they'd done a survey and they'd found that 95% of victims didn't report them after they happened. So what they did was something that was seen as very radical at the time, which was instead of just saying, let's tell women to report more, they stopped and said, let's ask why women aren't reporting. And they worked really closely on this initiative, this Project Guardian, with um, women's organisations, with specialist organisations, including the Everyday Sexism Project, um, the End Violence Against Women Coalition and others. And what they did was to listen to some of the root driving causes of the problem, the fact that it wasn't being taken seriously, the fact that sometimes women were not sure where to report, or if they did, they were perhaps going to a train or a bus driver and saying what had happened and often really not getting very good responses, that they'd report to police officers who were very dismissive. And instead of going straight to the public and telling women to report, they first took responsibility for a survivor-led training programme. And we retrained 2,000 British transport police officers directly using and listening to the testimonies of women who'd reported their stories to the Everyday Sexism Project. So they heard in those women's voices and their own words exactly what the problems were and how they'd been dismissed. And there was real top-down leadership on this at the BTP. So there was real, it was a a whole organisation approach to saying we take this seriously and we're taking a survivor-led approach and then they went to the public and said you can report this stuff to us we'll take it seriously and the result was a huge increase in the reporting of sexual offences but more importantly there was also a 35% increase in the detection of offenders in other words people were arrested and, and it was taken seriously as a result what I find really striking is that if you have a look at the everyday sexism project entries now and we've got hundreds of thousands of testimonies but if you search through them for the word police what you you see is a litany of women's negative experiences of reporting sexual abuse to the police, but also a a really high number of very positive experiences of reporting to the British Transport Police. So it's really clear that initiatives like that work, and that wouldn't be a particularly expensive or difficult thing to do. You know, there are things that we could do immediately that would have an institutional change that would be very different from saying, oh, let's just tell women to be a bit more careful and, and, and let's tell women not to wear short skirts. Ruth, what do you think about that? That survivor-led approach. I mean, like Laura said, it's kind of radical, but in another way, so obvious. Like, listen to people and then take steps based on what they say, you know, to help. Is that something you think could work here? 
Yeah, I obviously think that those who've experienced uh, any oppression should be listened to. And it's funny what Laura said about the transport police, because we don't have transport police in Ireland. It's actually one of the things that I would have raised. I was on the transport committee when I was in the Dáil. And the, the unions, the trade unions have been calling for transport police in Ireland. And I think that would significantly impact women feeling safer going on on them. We had a situation where there was a, a woman on a bus errand uh, bus who was uh, assaulted there quite recently, a worker, a female driver. And I think what we see in Ireland is like so slow, the establishment in particular, to, to move on any of these issues. And, you know, reviews are set up and they take years and years and years. And unless this is kept, you know, which it's extremely difficult to do during the pandemic because we have level five lockdown restrictions. People can't go beyond. Actually, it's not 5K. The, the regulation is you can't actually leave your house without a reasonable excuse and protest isn't considered a reasonable excuse. So obviously it should be done responsibly, I hasten to add. But that but it is a difficulty because these things are continuing not just to be a problem, but have actually increased. I mean, the UN has talked about the shadow pandemic of gender violence. And yet what you tend to get in the doll is once a year coming up to Christmas, we'll have an L debate on violence against women We'll throw another one in for International Women's Day. Boxes are ticked and we do need survivors to be listened to. But I, I actually feel the NGO sector in Ireland is very hidebound because they're reliant upon government for funding and therefore extremely uh, quiet about criticising them in any way. And yes, we have rape crisis centres. I mean, Take out here Dublin West, where I represent, there's over 120,000 people and it's one of the youngest populations in the country. There's no rape crisis centre. So women who are raped here, they go on to a central waiting list in the city centre. Uh, I mean, I don't know what it's like in, in, in Britain, but the idea that you've been raped, that you need counselling and you have to go on a waiting list that's just not shown that there's any indication that this is taken seriously by uh, the by the government here. Um, so I completely agree with listening to survivors. And it is unfortunate that these issues are getting pushed aside because of the pandemic. And all of the focus is on COVID, which we know is really serious. But because of the vaccination situation here, we could be in this for another year. And um who knows? So it is uh, extremely difficult. I'd just like to basically also one thing to say is that women in this pandemic have been hit in so many different ways. Three times more likely to lose your job, being on the front line fighting COVID. And then you have the increase in violence in the home and on the streets as well. So this should be taken seriously by government. Anna, coming back to you, you mentioned about the, you know, safer sort of public spaces and infrastructure and things like that. But just because Ruth mentioned earlier about the macho culture, the sort of toxic masculinity that um, some men don't like to acknowledge exists, but it clearly does. Uh, so a lot of this, a lot of the conversation is around and we're going to be looking at this on the women's podcast um, in a few weeks, hopefully about how uh, boys are raised and educated. And I think Ruth alluded to it, too, about sex education. 
Do you feel this is something that young men are talking about or being educated about in in as good a way as they should be? Or do you think more needs to be done in terms of sex education and consent education, as Ruth said earlier? Um, I think it's definitely improving. We're definitely seeing higher rates of better sex education and consent training. But I'm still not sure that there's kind of a consistent enough approach. Like um, I was helping out with the first year orientation this year and they all did consent training as part of that, which is great. But again, it's not mandatory. You know, if you didn't come to that session, you didn't come to that session. And like we didn't do it in first year when I started, which was just two years ago. So um, I still think it's quite inconsistent. But these conversations are being had much better. And I think, you know, a lot of young men understand consent a lot better than in the past. Do you find that they're calling each other out a bit more? Do you feel like that, you know, uh, with a a young group of uh, young men now that if one of them or two of them are saying, you know, disrespectful stuff or sexist stuff, that that there's other guys who are willing to come in and, and challenge them? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, again, more than in the past. Again, it depends on the situation in the group. But I think, you know, guys definitely are standing up more and kind of understand these issues better than before and are listening to the conversations that women have and kind of understanding the issues better and why it's important that they take a stand against it. Laura, I should come to you because it's a happy day for you. Uh, you launching your book today, which I think everyone here will be interested in the title and maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. Oh, I'd be happy to. I mean, it's difficult to describe it as a happy day in the context of everything that's going on. Um, yeah, probably wrong choice of words. But I think whenever you finish a piece of work and you get it out into the world, I think we can say congratulations on that, Thank even though it is you. a very serious subject. Thank you. It does feel very relevant, I think. Um, it is The book is called Men Who Hate Women. Um, and it is an attempt to reframe our focus away from violence against women as a kind of passively worded thing that happens to women and onto the men who carry out and who um, celebrate and who encourage that violence. Um, obviously, and I've had to repeat this in many interviews uh, recently, it, it isn't called men hate women. It's called men who hate women. Uh, it is hashtag not about all men, but it is about our discomfort in tackling head on the reality of a a, a group of men who, while they might be very small in percentage terms of the male population, are nonetheless rather larger in numbers than we might recognise. It looks at the interconnected groups of, of extremists, a form of terrorism, a form of radicalization that we don't label as such. Um, it looks at the situations in which men acting in the names of extremist male supremacist ideologies have carry out, carried out massacres, massacres like Elliot Rogers, Santa Barbara massacre, like the Toronto van attack where 10 people were murdered and 16 seriously injured, the vast majority of them women, uh, but also like the, um, the standard stabbing spree, attempted murder spree, where three women were stabbed by a boy in in England. Again, all of these explicitly in the name of violent hatred of women, encouraged and radicalised by online groups who believe that uh, women should be murdered and raped. And these are groups that are now coming offline, that they are carrying out attacks, and yet we don't meaningfully uh, register, track or attempt to tackle the problem. When I rang up counter-terror organisations to speak to them about the the, the book in my research, they would go quiet. When I mentioned the word incel, for example, there would be a long silence on the other end of the line. And then they would say they'd need to call me back. And a couple of weeks later, they'd ring back and say, no, we don't have any information about that. Laura, just can I interrupt you there for a second for some people might not know what an incel is. I think it's still something that people are learning 
about. Could you just explain that a little bit? Yes, of course. So incel is a, a portmanteau of involuntary celibate. So this is a community of men um, in the tens of thousands strong in the UK and, and hundreds of thousands around the world. If you look at the numbers of the complex network of, of forums and groups and websites and platforms that they frequent. These are men who believe that as men, it is their birthright that they are owed sex by women and who blame and are furious with women for, as they perceive it, withholding it from them. And as such, they encourage and incite what they talk about as a day of retribution when men will rise up and and massacre women as a form of revenge. And although it sounds extreme and ridiculous and it's very tempting to think, well, you must just be talking about a handful of weirdos, the truth is that we are talking about very, very major communities in the tens of thousands strong even for an individual community. And we are talking about men who do act on this and do go out and commit massacres in in the name. You know, again, in, in Toronto, and just over a year ago, uh, a young man who went into a massage parlour with a machete and murdered a woman. That is the only case, in fact, where terrorism has been has been used, where the, what he's been charged with, it's been labelled as terrorism. But beyond that, this is almost completely under the radar. And what's really worrying about it is that these groups are becoming extraordinarily adept at reaching out to radicalise boys. And it doesn't mean waiting for boys to go and find them in their communities. They are using viral YouTube videos, Instagram memes, pop culture references. They're finding boys in gaming chat rooms and on gaming live streams while they're sitting in their own bedrooms. They are going to places like bodybuilding forums where they're likely to find boys already perhaps vulnerable to particular ideas about masculinity and and how it needs to be performed. And they describe it openly as adding cherry flavour to children's medicine, the use of these viral memes and YouTube videos. They say that they deliberately target boys as young as 11 and they explicitly see the radicalisation of young people into misogyny and hatred of women as a slipway to other forms of extremism. So there are very close connections here as well with the far right, with white supremacy and very often men who commit massacres are are acting in the name of, of more than one of these ideologies so they're very closely related. Yeah, Laura, I said a happy day. I mean, I do still want to congratulate you because I think having a book out is is a good a good thing. But I mean, you have mired yourself in in the depths of the most murkiest uh, type of um, people that you've come across. I mean, I can't imagine how how difficult that has been. Ruth, I just like to know what you think. Hearing about um, Laura's new book, do you think it's important that we look at these things right in the face and we really uh, find out what's going on in order to then hopefully. Um, make sure that it doesn't get even more prevalent and hopefully stops. Yeah, because I I had mentioned I have noticed the same phenomena here, whereby when you post anything to do with violence against women, you immediately get quite a conscious campaign of commentary underneath your posts, uh, which I think has increased in the last few years. So you've got two different trends. You've got a very progressive you know, developing young men and women, which we definitely saw with the marriage equality and repeal referendums here in Ireland. But then you have another trend of far-right, misogynistic, uh, homophobic, fascistic uh, elements who are increasing their support. And is it any wonder when you look at, you had Trump elected as president, you have Bolsonaro in Brazil, and you have predatory, misogynistic uh, figures in India. Uh, I visited Russia a couple of years ago where domestic violence has been all but legalised. 
uh, where it, it was practically illegal for anyone to protest about it. But thankfully, there is an LGBT plus and, and women's movement in Russia, as we saw recently, willing to brave the most difficult of circumstances and come out and protest against this. So we are seeing these two different trends. And I think it's that's why I think discussions about systemic and societal issues are actually really important, because if you just if the whole discussion is focused, which this hasn't been on, you know, more streetlight and CCTV or, or whatever, actually, we need to discuss what is leading to these ideas becoming more prevalent in society. And, you know, that's why I'm not just a feminist, I'm, I'm a socialist feminist. You know, I think that there, there has, unless we also tackle the conditions that are leading to so much alienation among working class people, uh, we're, we're going to see these ideas growing. And uh, we, I, I do think it is very important. I'd be very interested to read Laura's book because there's no question that that has been something happening in Ireland as well. And why people like to hear women as well reflect on that too is quite worrying, you know. I think older women potentially uh, who who may be more susceptible to hear their, their son's mental health being da- damaged any time a woman speaks about uh, violence. But of course, that shouldn't be the case at all because the two things shouldn't be counterposed to each other. Anna, I'm interested to know what you think of Laura's new book and will you be getting it or giving it to maybe a few uh, people in your life? Because it seems to me that, I mean, I think it's a book I don't really want to read, but I will read it, Laura. Sorry to say that. I'll I'll read it, but I know I'm going to find it very, very distressing because I'd like to live in a world where this sort of thing wasn't going on and I don't really want to be opened up to it. But Anna, had you, have you heard anything about this and the whole incel culture and the rise of it? Um, yeah, it's definitely something I've heard about, but mostly in the context of Trump and the American elections. So um, it would be interesting to see, you know, research um, and read Laura's book about, you know, the UK and here, kind of closer to home, what is happening and how that looks like. Yeah, so definitely would be very interested to read the book. And just before you go then, Laura, I mean, you've said you've done some interviews and in terms of feedback or what you hope the book might achieve, what what's your what are your aims? I'd like to leave it on some kind of a hopeful note because I'm, I'm a bit of a trying to be a glass half full person, even though it is very distressing, all of this. Well, I can say actually that there has been some positive movement, even in the short period since the book's been out. I have been um, contacted by um, officers from counter-terror policing wanting to to talk about it and to to listen. So that's a really positive first step. I think part of the good news coming out of this book was that there is so much we can do because at the moment we are literally doing nothing. At the moment, people don't even know that this exists. So there is a lot of positive action that can happen. Um, a, a significant number of teachers have been in touch since it came out as well to say, come and talk to our young people about this. We weren't aware of this. Um, come, and, come and do teacher training so that teachers can become more aware and come and talk to parents. And I think that for me, that is a real uh, microcosm of, of the approach that we need going forward. It can't just be about one thing. There is no one silver bullet that will fix all of this. If there were, then we would have done it by now. It has to be about a willingness on all different parts of society from individuals 
to organisations, to schools, to businesses, to police officers, to parliamentarians saying, actually, we will do this. And if every one of those different areas and levels did one thing, then we might really start to see perhaps a point where not another outcry of women's voices and stories needs to happen. Laura, I don't know if you saw um, Catelyn Moran's column about... um potentially introducing curfews for men. <laughs> I think it was tongue in cheek and it did get a huge reaction. But um, I mean, it's just kind of those kind of th- ideas where where men would start to understand what it's like to be a woman and to walk in our shoes. Maybe that will move things on more. I don't know. But Ruth, um, in terms of what uh, Laura just said, just if there was any decision makers listening to this episode and uh, to, of the women's podcast who might be in a position to do something, what is the, it that you would like people to do immediately? OK, well, first of all, to say that I am very act- optimistic because despite the, the horrible dross that we're talking about, there is actually the beginnings now of a huge change in consciousness globally on all issues of oppression. I mean, if you look at last year, the Black Lives Matter movement was said by the New York Times to be the biggest social movement ever in the US. And I think as well, we are starting to see a global-wide revolt against sexism, sexual harassment and gender-based violence. I mean, the protests in Australia were extremely significant. And it isn't just in the so-called wealthier countries. This is happening now throughout Latin America, where you've mach- mach- machismo is particularly pronounced and encouraged in society. But it is happening in India, where there's a, been huge movements. I mean, in Kerala, you had a, a wall last year for International Women's Day, a human wall of women that was, you know, many kilometres long. We're starting to see a reaction against Modi and his kind of misogynistic and ethnic, uh, you know, sectarian approach as well. And we've seen it in in Africa, too, uh, starting to reflect. So it's it's uneven, but it's definitely there. And one of the benefits of social media is that you can actually have things on a global wide basis now. And the idea, for example, of a, a worldwide strike on International Women's Day last year and in, the, you know, Poland, etc., began to be raised as an idea. And I think those things will come back on the agenda again when the pandemic is finished. And your um, protests are happening around the country now today. Just tell us about a few of the cities that they'll be in, Ruth. OK, so Cork at 4pm uh, and then Galway and Limerick. And we're also having one in Swords because young school students approached us and asked us to, which I think is signs of positive change. And I'd emphasise that they will be socially distant standouts where people will hold up, you know, protests. So we had our placards. So we had things like we are the 97 percent. We had pro- placards like a uh, pandemic of gender violence. And we had uh, figures of 83 percent of women restrict their movements or adjust their plans because of fear of violence. So it is important that those things are maintained regardless of the pandemic, in a, in a safe way. So I'd encourage people to go to the Rosa, uh, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. 
Okay, thank you for that. And finally, Anna, as a young person, if you if there are any young people listening, which I know there are who listen to the Women's Podcast, what would you encourage them to do? You're clearly uh, very involved. You're an activist in this area. And maybe there's young people listening who'd also like to get involved. What can they do? Um, I think there's lots of organisations that you can get involved with um, and kind of learn more about the issues. So, for example, um, I volunteered with the local rape crisis centres, you know, just doing bucket collections and things. Uh, Plan International, our youth advisory panel, um, we recruit every year for young people from 16 to 24 and we're really looking for more young people from across Ireland with different backgrounds to join that and it's been a really amazing opportunity for me to be involved in advocating on these issues and to get to know different people um, and people all across the world, you know, and like Ruth was saying that it is such a global issue um, and that it's really something that's universally felt by women and that needs to be addressed by everyone across the world. Well, that's a good place to to end it. And I'd just like to personally thank all three of you for all the different types of work that you are doing. And hopefully, um, I do like your hopeful approach there, Ruth uh, and Laura as well, that that maybe this is a moment, maybe we are seeing a change that actually is going to have make a systematic difference to this and that we won't be still talking about it in 20 years or 10 years or even five years, maybe. Maybe some things are about to change and we just have to hope in that and also just keep very vigilant. But uh, Ruth, Anna and Laura, thank you very much for joining us. That's all we have time for. Do stay safe. And if you're on any of those protests today or in the future, do keep socially distanced and wear a mask. Thanks to Ruth Coppinger, Laura Bates and Anna Golden for their contributions today. We will keep returning to this subject because it's not going to go away and we need to keep talking about solutions. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.